Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. You're back. We're back. We all back. We all back. We all back. Uh, Friends, we're really excited about this. Mm -hmm. Um, We, uh, I think, mentioned it uh, in passing on our email list. If you're not signed up for that, by the way, you can go to gravityleadership.com slash join. You can join our online community uh, where you get uh, all kinds of good stuff, including curated links uh, for leaders on Fridays. Anyway, uh, we've announced this and teased it a little bit, and we're really excited about it. But today is uh, N.T. Wright. We get yes. to interview N.T. Wright. He wrote a new book on the pandemic, God and the Pandemic. And so uh, we talk with him about that. We also mm-hmm. ask him a, a couple things about uh, um, our other current uh, cultural cultural moment, um, mm. the, kind of the protests and the and racism. And we ask him about all kinds of stuff. It's yep. great. Yeah. Um, what else was going to say about this? Oh, this is, uh, you know, this is part of our, we're doing kind of a mini series in the middle of our normal series. We're doing parenting. Our parenting episodes come out on Tuesdays and our pandemic episodes come out on um, Thursdays for yeah. a little while here. Double, so your culture, double your fun. Yes. Yeah. This whole month, right? Uh, yeah. I think we're doing two or th- two or three or four of these episodes. Um, yeah. We haven't left the house and we've just been recording like fiends. <laughs> it's true. It's it's a little ridiculous. We actually recorded. I feel like we've got stuff. We've got content that takes us almost to Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't. I mean, it's. I don't know. It's. It makes me giggle. It's just, it's just kind of silly. So anyway, I've got, lots I've got, of good stuff in the can. I got to do tasks in base camp that are a year and a half uh, overdue, but uh, I got <laughs> podcasts to Christmas. Yeah. Well, now that we've recorded all these, maybe we can get around to those other tasks. Don't be foolish, so, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're <laughs> wishful yeah, we, thinking. That's we magical should, thinking we should, right though. there. Uh, we, we should. There's a lot of things we got to do. Well, uh, uh, if you don't know to, who Tom Wright is, get ready to uh, hold on to your butts because uh, <laughs> he's an incredible man, theologian, pastor, mm-hmm. and he actually pastors us here. And one of the things I love about him is that um, sometimes I like to just say crazy things to see how people will respond. It it could be the part about me that people like the least and the most depending on who you are. But mm. I throw some things at Tom that I think are uh, a little outlandish, a little over the top, and he handles them with uh, dexterity. He, mm-hmm. You can't flap his affableness. Yep, he's affable and unflappable. Yeah, 
Yeah. And so uh, just a joy to talk to, and hopefully he comes back and chats with us again. But we should just get and, to this, yeah? Yeah, we probably should. I, I just want to say, like, I uh, I also, one of the things I uh, respect the most about people that I get to meet, obviously I haven't didn't meet him in person, but, we, you know, we had a little conversation with him, and you can mm-hmm. see his office there in Oxford. And mm-hmm. um, But I, uh, I really respect uh, his generosity of his time but also his kindness. So like his, his unflappableness doesn't have to do with an avoidance of issues or a way of talking around things. He addresses things so directly yes. and so kindly and so um, charitably. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's something, uh, it's one of the, I heard another podcast today where somebody said like, what's the character trait you uh, value the most? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember meeting Dallas Willard and I remember thinking like, Man, I, I think I used to val- I used to think like intelligent people were pretty impressive. Um, when I met Dallas Willard, I was like, you know what? Gentle people are really impressive. Yeah, kind people are really Gentle. impressive. Yep. And uh, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, is one of those people. So, yes. But his intellect is also uh, really good as well. His, his ability to kind of gather up the streams of uh, the uh, like the biblical narrative and the themes and kind of gather all this stuff up and uh, sort of present it, give you, the, gives you this picture. It, it just, it reminds me of reading Tom Wright, uh, talking with Tom Wright. And so um, he's got a very, he's just got a lot of clarity uh, about some of this stuff and a lot of really helpful things to say about how we deal with pandemics and racism as the church. Yes. So yeah, he's awesome. All right. So hold on. And, and the interview went pretty long. So as you guys can probably it see did. from your yeah, uh, well, time, time thing, yeah. but, yeah. but you know, if you've got uh, Tom Wright on the phone, uh, you try to hold on to him as long as you can. So, <laughs> anyway, hopefully it's uh, one of many interviews. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, here, here's, here's Tom. Enjoy this interview. Okay, friends, welcome to this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Uh, I'm here with Matt, and we are joined today by uh, a relatively obscure uh, theological author named N.T. Wright, a.k.a. Tom. Uh, Tom is the professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he's also the senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, where he is now. Uh, He is the award-winning author, if you're not familiar with him, of over 80 books and hundreds of articles, including After You Believe, Surprised by Hope, Simply Christian, The Challenge of Jesus, etc., etc., etc. Tom, uh, your work has been really uh, profoundly helpful and influential for us and for lots of our listeners, I know. And so, first of all, thank you for your work and welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you. I don't think I've been on your podcast before, and it's a, a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, this is the first time I think we, we would have remembered, and so uh, this, <laughs> is, this is lovely. Uh, hopefully one of many to come. Um, thank you for spending some time uh, talking with our listeners today. Um, so the specific reason we've got you on today is you've written this new book um, called God and the Pandemic, A Christian Reflection on the Coronavirus hmm. and Its Aftermath. Um, and this is a, it's a short, pretty short book. Um, and it is, uh, it's interesting though, because it's basically a trip through the whole Bible. Um, mm-hmm. you start with the old Testament, the Psalms, Job, and then you come through the Jesus and the gospels, you talk about the new Testament, and it really is a, a helpful guide to help us think and act more faithfully as the church, as Christians in times of crisis. Um, and we'll, we'll get to this a little bit, but obviously you've written this book on the pandemic. Um, and, since you wrote the book and since we booked this interview, um, obviously recent events have overshadowed in the news cycle, at least uh, the pandemic. Um, and there, I, I, I'm curious to ask some questions about that as we, as we sure. get uh, going, but, um, but maybe first of all, to kick us off, you know, so many Christians, when something bad happens, like the, the coronavirus, um, so many Christians jump to why, why did this happen? Uh, why do bad things happen? And they try to figure out how God is involved in it. Is this judgment? Is he telling us something? Um, you know, that that kind of a thing. Um, first of all, I, I don't know if you have thoughts like, why Why do you think this is? Why do we jump to why so quickly? What are we doing there? 
it's it's interesting because your question reflects the same syndrome that uh, that we're talking about yes <laughs> um, but that is what our culture characteristically does it's been very interesting to me because the work that i've done over the last few years particularly in relation to my gifford lectures which are now published as history and eschatology highlighted the fact that people didn't always ask that question christians mm. didn't always ask that question when bad things happened in the ancient world the early Christian fathers were quite used to um, plagues, earthquakes, disasters, wars, people dying for all sorts of obscure reasons that nobody quite knew why. And uh, they didn't tend to see this in any way, either as, oh, this is a fresh revelation, God is trying to tell us something particular, or, um, oh, this means that God has lost control of the world. They just knew that the world was like this. And the world that they as Christians inhabited was like this, but they found in their own personal experience and in their beliefs that Jesus was with them in the middle of it. And that's really the heart of the whole Christian response. It's not that we can track back and see, oh, I see God pressed the wrong button there, or he pressed this button because he's angry with us because of this. It's more, yeah, we always knew life was a bit of a mess. And thank God, literally, that Jesus has come to be with us in the mess and to take the pain of the world upon himself. That's how Christians in former ages often tended to react because the question, bad things have happened, therefore somebody is angry with us, for instance, that's actually a standard pagan way to react. If you lived in ancient, ancient Athens or Philippi or Ephesus or somewhere like that, um, if, if there was an earthquake, immediately people would say, this is because we haven't been worshiping the gods properly which is why, because the Christians, of course, didn't worship the pagan gods. Um, when you got a Christian community in a town and bad things happened, people immediately blamed the Christians. Um, mm. Tertullian says this in the second century. He says, whatever happens, the cry goes up, Christians to the lions. It's all your fault. Um, so <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the pagan response. And it's interesting to me that yeah. we in the modern age have kind of gone back to that a bit. Um, yeah. because in the New Testament, we don't find that. And one of the things that first clued me into this when people started saying to me, what do we say? What do we think about this? I was thinking through the New Testament, what, what, what happens when there are um, bad things that happen? And the answer is, well, think of Acts chapter 11, when the prophet Agabus says, there's going to be a famine. It's going to be the whole world. Everyone's going to be going hungry. The church in Antioch does not say, oh, dear, God must be angry with us. What should we repent of? Nor do they say this is a sign that Jesus is coming back. They knew Jesus would come back at any time, but they didn't interpret it like that. They said, who is going to be most at risk when this happens? What can we do to help and who shall we send? And mm. they would have said that the way of responding to a situation is to look at, the, the, at what God, the God of new creation, is doing in this situation how can we be the hands and feet and eyes and ears of god to bring healing and hope whatever it is that's happening yeah i hear two i hear two things there tom i hear one there's sort of an enlightenment modern sort of proclivity to want to know how mm -hmm. things work and break mm -hmm. things down and get to the get to the guts and the warp and woof of things yep. but then i also hear this antiquity maybe it's even i don't know how you understand the book of job but like job's friends I know why these bad things are happening. Exactly. You've displeased Zeus, and exactly. now he's going to zap you. <laughs> so we see yeah. it in both, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's part of the problem. I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote the little book was that I wrote, you probably know, a tiny little Time magazine article about two or three months ago, just 800 words, and somebody put a funny headline on it. It wasn't my headline, something about Christianity doesn't have the answers and it's not supposed to, which yeah. was a kind of a spin on what I'd written, but yeah. I wouldn't have put it like that myself. But still, <laughs> I immediately got people emailing me or friends saying, do you know that on this podcast or this um, website, people are really cross with you and saying, it looks like Tom Wright never reads his Bible because in the Bible, it's quite clear. They quote the book of Amos or Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. If you do A, B and C, then X, Y and Z are going to happen to you. And I said, well, fine. Okay, that is one strand that really does run through the Old Testament, NB, and it's the covenantal strand that God calls Israel to be his special people and warns them that if they um, mess up, then the great promises of covenantal blessing are going to be taken away from them and they'll go into exile instead. That strand goes all the way from Deuteronomy through Lamentations to Daniel 9, all over the place, and it's there in the prophets. But then along with that, you have Psalm 44, 
you have mm -hmm. Psalm 73, you have the beginning of Psalm 22, and you have the book of Job. And so I love yeah. Psalm 44 because it's one of Paul's great psalms that he quotes in Romans 8 when he's dealing with the groaning of creation. Psalm 44 says, all this bad stuff has happened to us, but we haven't gone false on your covenant. We haven't betrayed you. We haven't done the wrong thing. Our hearts have been true to you. So why is it going on? And mm. now, please do something about it. And, yes. and so there is that second strand in the Old Testament. These strands come together in Jesus, who is both the one who takes the ancient curse of Israel and the Torah onto himself, as in Galatians 3, but also the one who is the innocent victim, who did not himself deserve this. And it's only in Jesus that we see the varied strands of Old Testament theology coming rushing together. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Jesus uh, because we're Christians and that's what we do. But yeah, he, he he also seems to field this question from his uh, followers, you know, yeah. several times. Uh, who yeah. sinned, right? Who who? Or do you want, you want us to call down fire here? And he yeah. he either dodges the question or he brings a fairly, depending on which manuscript you're reading, a fairly strong rebuke with, uh, "You don't know what spirit you're of here." So I, I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. mentioned that Jesus actually. It seems like. In his ministry, he points yep. us to one strand of the Old Testament. And in the cross, you alluded to the fact that he satisfies the blessing and curses, which is the other strand of Yes, and, and I would say there's actually more than two strands, but those two particularly. I mean, there, there is the, the, the whole strand of what are human beings called to do and be? What does it mean to be in the image of God? And Jesus okay. clearly fulfills that, but uh, which is a creational thing. That's not even post-fall. That's right from the beginning. This is what human beings are there for, to reflect God's love into the world, to reflect the praises of the world back to God. Jesus does all that. But yeah. because of sin, God calls Israel to be the solution to the problem, but Israel is also part of the problem. And that's, mm -hmm. what, that's what the story of the Old Testament is all about. And Jesus takes all of that entail of human sin and of Israel's covenantal rebellion and draws all that together. You see it going on in the Gospels, the hostility of the Pharisees and the hostility of Herod or of the Romans. It's mm -hmm. all dumped onto Jesus, literally, historically. I mean, but it's interesting, the passage you quote, um, John 9, when um, they meet, Jesus and the disciples meet a man who's been born blind. And the disciples, they want to know, was it his fault? Did he sin or did his parents? That he was born, and it looks as though they're talking about sins before birth of some sort. What, what on earth yeah. are they getting at? Yeah. And Jesus just says, forget it. That's not where we're going with this. This has happened that the works of God might be revealed. Again and again in John's gospel, you see this sense. I mean, it's very interesting because the plagues in Egypt, if you go back to that in, in the book of Exodus, are warning signs of judgment. But mm -hmm. the signs in John's gospel, the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, etc., 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 these are signs of new creation. And that's what yes. John is drawing attention to. But th there is, of course, I mean, it's not uniform. There is the passage in John 5 where Jesus heals the man who's been there by the pool of Bethesda for a long time. And Jesus yeah. heals him. And then he says, watch out, don't sin in case something worse befalls you. In other mm -hmm. words, he's not discounting the possibility that in individual cases, people may get into a mess because of their own fault. But as a general rule, like in Luke 13, pilots sent in the troops and massacred some pilgrims and a tower in Siloam just down from the temple collapsed and killed people. Were they worse sinners than everybody else? No, because mm -hmm. this is a sign of judgment. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what I'm seeing in the Gospels, and I think this is a, it's an invitation to to grow up in our reading of the Bible and mm. not just say, here's a verse in Amos, plonk, here's a bit yep. of the psalm, yep. but actually to see how the story works, focused on Jesus and then coming out. It, it's it's a way of saying Jesus stands there as the, the apex of the prophetic tradition and he draws it together and then launches this new creation in which new things happen. And if you want to retrieve the Old Testament, you have to do it through the lens of Jesus. Otherwise, yeah. all sorts of things will go wrong. As we know, hermeneutically, they regularly have done in church history and yes. in modern times. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. So um, 
so this the part of the opportunity here is is a call to learn to grow grow up become a more mature reader of the bible yep. so we're, we stop proof texting we stop thinking oh yep. i never knew that verse was there that changes everything and learn to read the whole thing and realize yep. there's there's strands of thought that are in tension sometimes with each other and that's part of how god has revealed himself to us yeah, you know yeah, and, yeah. and we have to take that seriously mm. Yeah, mm. it's to, to that extent, it's like music, you know, that in mm. music, m music works by tension, which gets resolved or possibly not. And if you say you're not allowed any tension at any point in the music, it's a bit very boring music. Uh, mm. And every great novel or play has uh, tension. Otherwise, there's no plot. You know, the cat sat on the mat isn't a plot. Um, <laughs> the, the, the cat, the cat sat on, uh, I don't know, where the, the, the pet parrot was sitting and they had a fight and got, this is the start of a plot. What are we going to do about it? Here's a problem. And so we shouldn't be surprised. And this is the trouble when the rationalist Christian response to rationalist critique has often been to treat the Bible as though it was just a collection of truths that were all sort of on a level with each other. And you could just pull any of them out and say, now this is true, bang, there, gotcha. Yes. And it really, it never was like that. And yeah. it'll bounce back and everybody will get hurt if we start playing the game that way. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, good metaphor. Um, so you're, you've alluded to this based on, you know, your study of early Christianity and um, the scriptures and kind of what they show us about um these questions that we have and it sounds like our our desire for knowing why things are the way they are there's a there's an element of control to it it's a classic kind mm -hmm. of pagan response i, I want to figure out what i did wrong so i can stop this mm -hmm. plague mm -hmm. or i can stop mm -hmm. this thing mm -hmm. from happening this bad thing from happening um but the the early christian response was less why and more what like what yeah. is it time to do now it, it was less why and more what but also more jesus um <laughs> one of the other things i was really struck by because um, you know, I was an ancient historian before I was a theologian, and I still love that stuff. The Greek yeah. and the Roman worlds is fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and when Paul is preaching in Athens, or not, not preaching, actually, he's defending himself against the charge of introducing foreign gods, Jesus yeah. and Anastasis. Um, and a hundred years before Paul's time, a bit, slightly more than that, but not much, the Romans had smashed Athens to bits as far as they could because Athens had taken the side of the enemy in a war which Rome was engaged with and Rome punished them. We're going to carve you up. Now, how easy it would have been to have taken that or some, I don't know, a pandemic or an earthquake or something and say, ah, the gods are calling you to repent. Look what happened to you. Don't you realize this is because you've not... Paul doesn't go there. He hmm. says... God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, which is a quotation, by the way, from Psalms 96 and 98, by a man whom he has appointed, of which he has given authority or assurance by raising him from the dead. In other words, Paul ignores all the other possibilities and says it's because of Jesus that you've now got to repent. So there is a call to repent. Um, but it's the it's the call which is focused entirely on this fresh revelation which has happened in Jesus, which mm. upstages everything else. And it seems to me that's the point at which that this idea of a funnel, that all that prophetic tradition gets funneled down onto mm. Jesus and then has to come out the other side. And this is the center of our message. Yes. And then and then Jesus then in in his life and ministry and death and resurrection shows us uh, what God is really like. Yeah. Right, but then he also shows us what humans are like. He shows us yeah. he becomes yeah. the true human, right? And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I I'm hearing in a lot of what you're saying about the way the ancient Christians responded is it, it's sort of an imitation of or a participation in the life of Christ, sort of. Okay, sort of. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with imitation, of course, is that I think I say in after you believe, um, thinking of Jesus as a model to imitate is like. When I go out to play golf, thinking of Tiger Woods as a model to imitate, you know, mm. yeah, wouldn't it be nice if I could have hit a golf ball 380 <laughs> yards? But I'm sorry, if I actually yeah. think of Tiger Woods or um, McElroy or any of the others, I'll just get depressed. Right. And if I if I think I should live my life like Jesus, well, wouldn't that be nice? Dream on. Um, so the participation is really important, and this is why, of course, of course. Um, the New Testament majors on the doctrine of the Spirit, not the doctrine, the fact of the Spirit, Acts, John, Romans, etc. Um, we are given the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, 
in order both to understand what's going on and to be able to to set our sails according to that wind. Yeah. Um, and that is a daily challenge. You know, I've been trying mm. to do it all my life, and it's still a daily challenge. Yes. So as it pertains then to this pandemic, the coronavirus, the two main yeah. refrains I'm hearing from Christians are, let's lament the mm -hmm. evil, which is a, a great message for a Western culture that treats sadness as a sickness. We don't know how to be sad. We don't know how to be sad with an eschatological telos in the sadness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other is sort of to stand against it uh, as a as a herald of the kingdom of God and, and you know, speak against it. And I wonder, how do you hold those two together in maybe as in your personal piety, Tom, but also as you lead a group of people, how do you be sad and fight for new creation and prayer at the same time. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I think the, the, the main, one of the main things to say, which is very obvious is that the, the book of Psalms are in the Bible for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the Psalms have these great laments, some of which are really angry, um, like shaking God by the shoulder and saying, now, come on, get your act together. You're supposed to be doing something here. Um, and also some of them are really angry and bitter against human enemies who have done really bad things. And uh, I saw a thing online just today, somebody saying um, uh, that, that in dealing with the present racial troubles that are happening in the United States, um, some anger is actually justified. And the Psalms maybe can be, we have to be terribly careful about this, but the Psalms mm. maybe offer ways of saying, when you feel that utter anger and hatred, here is a way in which, with fear and trembling, maybe you are allowed to express that, yeah. as long as then, again, you bring it through the Sermon on the Mount, through Jesus, and yes. through Jesus on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. But in a sense, that whole biblical narrative needs to be... See, I, I was talking to one of the senior leaders of the Church of England when this whole thing broke out, and I was talking about lament, and he said to me, the trouble is, Tom, the church isn't very good at lament, and the church isn't actually very good at celebration. The mm. church normally, the Western church normally just does complacency. And mm. wow, isn't that isn't that the case? And so somehow learning and, and the point about lament is that you hope something will grow out of it, but at the moment you don't know what, and that's where Romans eight comes in, of course. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm struck struck by that. I, I I saw there's a someone named David Bailey uh, recently talked about the Psalms as anger school. Mm, yeah, I think that, that may have been what I saw referring to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, anger school, and he he said the Psalm praying the Psalms, not just knowing that they're there, you know, <laughs> but praying them, yeah, um, yeah. is an anger school for us. And and he says this: I've discovered that when we skip class, we aren't emotionally equipped uh, to deal with uh, the difficult uh, stuff we're experiencing right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's a great line. That's a great line. When we skip class, you see, uh, I as a classic Anglican would say. <clears throat> There's a reason why the Anglican prayer book has, on average, five psalms a day, and you get through them every month. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yes. We, we need to know that stuff. Yes. yes. Uh, maybe maybe then before we leave this, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm struck by how uh, the disciples knew they needed to be taught how to how to pray, and so they yes. asked Jesus, teach yes. us how to pray. Yeah. I wonder if you could maybe teach us how to pray for a moment. I find that when I'm, <laughs> I find that when I'm seeking to pray for the virus to leave— or for us to be delivered, that I I don't I have this tension when I watch Peter and John pray against evil spirits or against illnesses, they aren't asking God for a favor, they are declaring and commanding things, and and creation responds. And I guess I've thought about that as the difference between praying like a beggar and praying like a son. And um, what would you say to those of us who feel like we don't have the faith? to command the virus to leave? And and is that something we should feel guilty about? How do you sort that out? Yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure that I can sort it out because in my experience pastorally and in leading congregations and so on, and listening to people from other traditions talk about this stuff as well, I just think God seems to give to some people some of the time a strong sense that they have the authority to do this right now. I mean, it goes back in my mind, one of the congregations where I was pastor many years ago, 
um, there, there was a young man who was blind from birth, and this is in a university context, and he, he was an amazing young man who had studied hard and got a place at Oxford University and was working hard. He was part of the congregation. And every time I gave him communion, I wished that I had the authority to lay my hands on him yeah. and, and, and enable him to see. And I would pray about that, and I never had the sense that I ought to do this. And and some people might say, well, you were a wimp. You should just go, uh, prayed and then gone ahead and done it anyway. But I think actually it's more it's more subtle than that. And mm. I think some people are given gifts of healing like that. And some people, I think, you know, Paul talks about gifts of faith, as special gifts of faith in mm. 1 Corinthians 12. And I think some people just do have a gift of faith to say enough is enough. We command this now to depart. Um, but I mean, it's interesting. I, one of the things I quote in the book, and I read the whole section from which that's just a short quote. There's some wonderful letters by Martin Luther, because we forget that, of course, throughout most of human history, yeah. epidemics and pandemics and plagues have been, yeah, every 20 or 30 years ago, there's an, <laughs> or so there's another one. Yeah. And so they developed strategies. And Luther says, I will pray, I will seek the health of my neighbors, I will not do anything foolish, I will take medicine. If God wants to take me, he knows where to find me, but I'm going to be wise and sensible and get on and say my prayers. And it's just very practical, feet on the ground kind of stuff. And I would say within that, some people may well have the gift to say of certain things at certain times, it is time for this to stop and in the name of Jesus we command it to stop but I would be very wary of that because I've seen that abused yes. where people have assured people who are sick um, that they are now going to get better we have prayed, we have faith, we do not doubt therefore bang yeah. and then the person goes ahead and dies um, yeah. and then there's a huge sort of oh dear what hindered our praying and was there some secret sin in our lives and you get into all sorts of tangles which I think is not the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the result of a sort of, um, I don't know, a kind of spiritual indigestion where um, <laughs> the spiritual stomach is kind of feeding on itself. Yeah. Um, and th th there are dangers there. But yeah. so I think our daily prayer, you know, the Lord's Prayer is given to us as a simple but amazingly profound gift. And so every day when I pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. That prayer stretches out to include the young widow with the two little children, to include the old friend who is uh, in a hospice now dying of whatever, to include uh, the, the, the racial tensions and riots, and thy will be done, and to hold on to that. And if in the context of praying that simple prayer and holding on to these things, if then one gets a strong sense, you need to phone so-and-so now, you need to go and visit, not that we can visit now, but you need to send a message to so-and-so, well, do it. Yes. Um, and, and who knows what will come yeah. when we do the things which, as we pray, we sense that nudge to do. And that demands of us that we stick pretty darn close to Jesus in all this time, as we always should. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. I think the mistake that I uh, feel myself pulled towards, and I think the mistake I've seen other people fall into is... Uh, is to try to drum up some faith, is to try to oh. manufacture it through my yeah. emotional, like if I can just get excited or angry enough, yeah. 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 then then it'll come. But you're, you're, you're talking yeah. more about a responsive yeah. faith to say, yeah. is faith rising? Okay, let me respond yeah. to that yeah. and see where it yeah. takes me. I mean, it seems to me that the, 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 the discipline of daily uh, Bible reading, psalm praying, and prayers in general mm -hmm. is one within which um 
I've heard people say it in this sort of rather crude way, within which God can show up and do whatever he wants. Um, it doesn't mean that just because you have this daily routine that you go through of praying and so on, that every day you will have that feeling. Mm -hmm. But if God wants to get through and use you in some way, chances yeah. are that's the standard way. You know, yes. um, yeah. if, if, if I go to that corner of the street at a certain time in the morning, I know that so-and-so, my neighbor, is likely to be going by. Well, if I yeah. go to those places, the Psalms and the Gospels, it's reasonably possible that Jesus may just show up. <laughs> and, I mean, that, that puts it crudely, but but I think it's yeah, yeah. something. Right. God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. Mm. I can't I can't conjure him up like like rubbing a lamp and getting a genie. It doesn't work like that. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I want to get to that that word you just mentioned, sovereignty, um, in just a second. Um, but just to recap, and then I'd like to do something that uh, some friends of ours do on another podcast uh, called a speed round. And we'll explain that here in just a second. But uh, but just to recap, you're saying the, the Christian response then to the coronavirus, the pandemic that's happening right now, is not to look backwards and say, why did this happen? But to look forwards and say, what what can yeah. we do? I hear you saying we need to pray and lament. That's a, that's a big part of our response. And I hear you saying we need to look for who are the most affected and how can we help? Yeah. I, the, the, the one footnote. Okay. There is a looking back, which is to say, there is this thing called the World Health Organization. It seems to be, like some other international bodies, more than a little dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. We need a functioning body like that. And we need to push for that and to make it active because there probably are physical, discernible causes for why these things have happened. If it's an earthquake, there's nothing we can do about it, guys. If it's something like this, there may well be things that we can learn. So that we should mm. look back in that sense. Instead of looking back for some, um, you know, why did God drop this thunderbolt on us? Look back and see what was going on in the food chain, in the use of certain animals in medicine and whatever right. it is. Yeah. Um, so, but but, but from a Christian point of view, yes, somebody's got to do that scientific work and research. And then we have to have political and socially responsible bodies to implement the results. And we all should be doing that in various things. But then as Christians, we are looking for how does God's purpose of new creation based in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, how are we caught up in that narrative going forward from here? Yes. Great. Yeah, really important. And that connects, too, to the some of the questions I want to ask about yeah, sure. the protests and that kind of thing. So um, should we do a speed round, Matt? Yeah, let's that? do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, Tom, if you're not familiar, uh, our friends at OnScript uh, mm -hmm. do this thing called a speed round where they ask uh, people to answer a random set of questions. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. No qualification. Uh, we're not going to ask you to explain yourself. You're just sure. going to get like, you know, real quick answers if you can. Okay. So are you willing to uh, engage oh, with us? Sure, on a speed sure. Yeah, I've done this sort of thing before. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> All right. So here's the first one. Um, for pastors, like a lot of our audience, uh, they, they, uh, they, they preach every week, they're pastors. What is the most important theological idea in the last 50 years that pastors need to understand ASAP? I would say Miroslav Volf's book, Exclusion and Embrace. Hmm. Brilliant. Uh, do you like soul food? Do I like? Soul food. Soul food. If I knew what it was, I'd be able to answer the question. <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's an American thing. All right. Uh, what would you do if you were not a theologian, scholar, pastor, some of the oh, stuff that you do? I, I would ideally have liked to be an orchestral conductor, but I probably don't have the talent for that. So I would be a music critic. I would go to concerts and write about them. Mm. Uh, what's one aspect of pop culture that makes you feel older than you feel like you are? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, well, when I hear my kids and grandkids talking about the music that they listen to and realizing I haven't heard of one single one of these. <laughs> yes. Love it. yes. Uh, all right. Where do you get your news? Oh, um, I, I read the London Times online every morning. Um, I look at the BBC website. I occasionally listen to the BBC news. Okay. Great. What's uh, one habit or regular practice you have in your life daily or weekly that people would be surprised to learn about you? Oh, that's very difficult to say. I really don't know. Um, I, I mean, uh, I have lived in Scotland for, tw for 10 years. Um, 
I suspect people would expect me to have a glass of single malt every night. Um, <laughs> that, that would be just part of the part of the deal. So that, that'll do. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, how about a good non-theology, non-biblical studies book that you've read recent recently? Oh, I, I'm actually in the middle of a wonderful book called "The Hidden Life of Trees," which my sister let me. Yes. It's it's all about what happens um, unknown to the rest of us. In a forest, where yeah. do you know do you know that stuff? Where yes. where tree, trees communicate with each other, they warn each other of danger. Um, uh, it's absolutely it's fascinating, and it's part of the glory of creation. Yes, <laughs> Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien was onto something. Uh, I yeah, I think he probably just intuited it. I don't think yeah. he will have known the science. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, what's one thing that you wish pastors would stop saying in their sermons? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and finally. When they've got another twenty minutes to go. <laughs> All right, that's uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, that was a, that was a good speed round. That was hey, I, and finally, I have one more. Oh. Uh, all right, Tom. Uh, John Piper has just challenged you to a duel at dawn over the meaning of justification in the Ordo Salutis, and you get to choose the weapons. What <laughs> weapons do you choose? Uh, the letters of the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, All right. Perfect. Basically, drop the mic there. So very good. All right. Yeah. Uh, um, all right. So let's uh, thank you for participating in that with us. Um, let's get back to this word sovereignty. Uh, you yeah. you brought it up earlier. It's a big. It's part of the. It's part of the book that you you talk about. And I think um, you know we mentioned uh, Piper, um, who is one of your critics. Uh, and there's a lot of other people who have criticized, especially your earlier writings assuming that lament, which you encourage, and a belief in God's sovereignty are mutually exclusive. What do you, like, what do you see in the way that Jesus redefines uh, divine sovereignty? Like, how does he give us a different view of that? And how can we learn how to think about sovereignty in a new way? One of the things which has been occurring to me through this coronavirus crisis is that some people are using the concept of sovereignty, divine sovereignty, in a way which I now realize, come to this late, why not, um, that all the gospel's teaching about the kingdom of God is actually subversive of mm. traditional views of sovereignty. I think the problem here has been that over the last several centuries, both skeptics like deists and devout Christians have tended to start with a vision of God the Father uh, as being in control of everything, as the God, the creator, providence, etc. And then further down the track, well, there's we human beings, we're in a mess. Oh, well, God sent Jesus, who happens to be his own son. He got us out of the mess. Um, as though you get the picture of God and sovereignty and how the world works first, and then mm. you fit Jesus in almost to, to, to mop up the mess. Right. Um, mm. And in fact, uh, this is part of the long Western tradition of ignoring what the four Gospels are actually all about. Mm -hmm. I, I heard a lecture not very long ago, No Names, No Pactrill, where it was a very learned lecture about Gospel criticism, etc. But at the end of an hour and a half of a seminar, nothing had been said at all about the Kingdom of God, which is what the Gospels are all about. Yeah. And the point of the Gospels is that Jesus is saying, I know you've been expecting God to come back and take charge. Well, let me tell you, this is what it looks like, healing a leper, welcoming sinners to a party, etc., etc., etc. And this is what it looks like as he goes to the cross. How yeah. is that the kingdom of God? Yeah. And so, and for me, a lot of this is focused on Mark 10, where James and John say, we want the best seats in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about, mm -hmm. because he knows there will be people at his right and his left, and it won't be James and John, thank you very much. Yeah. And lucky for them. Um, <laughs> But he says, he says, listen, the rulers of the Gentiles do it one way by bossing and bullying people. We're going to do it the other way because mm. the one who wants to be great must be your servant, slave, because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the whole notion of power, of yes. sovereignty, yes. of control mm. has to be redefined around the cross. Do mm. we see the early Christians picking that up? Boy, do we. Think yes. of Second Corinthians. Paul is exactly on that track. Mm -hmm. um, when I am weak, then I am strong. I think Paul has had to learn that the hard way, actually, yes. according to 2 Corinthians. But it's, it's, it's absolutely built in. 
Um, and this is something, uh, you know, it, it's so interesting to me, the neglect of the Gospels as sources of the richest theology. We've mm -hmm. tended to treat them as places to go for little package deals, a, a sermonette <laughs> here or there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine said, um, you know, we treat the Gospels as like a dinner party, the, the chips and the dips that you have before the main meal. Then we go through to the dining room where we sit down to the red meat of Pauline theology. And then this right, is this right, real right. meal. And in fact, what we're doing there, and it's, it's a Western thing, because since the Middle Ages, there's been a problem about figuring out how God's sovereignty and human kingdom yeah. work together, if at all. And so the tendency has been to separate them. And then that gets picked up within the platonic strand in Western Christianity. So the kingdom of God is is heaven. That's where God rules. Yes. And, um, and then we rule down here. Isn't that convenient? Um, <laughs> so the, 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 that's, yeah. that's the enlightenment. That's, yeah. you, you kick God upstairs, mm. and now we will run the downstairs world. Mm. Um, yes. And I know you in America and they in France did it more overtly than we in Britain did, but we've done it too, actually, mm -hmm. pretty much mm -hmm. the yeah. same. Um, and the, the whole notion of the kingdom of God in the Gospels ought to be put front and center and allowed to work its way through both in political theology and in control discussions etc yeah well there's a lot there in that uh but, but i think that that moves us in the right direction um mm. to, to be able to re think a new thought about sovereignty it's not it's not about a god who's outside the world controlling the world controlling the events of the world but it's about a god who is in christ in the world showing us what his sovereignty looks like ultimately on the cross and in the resurrection, of course. But, um, but that sort of deeply ironic picture is, is a, a beginning place yeah. for us to meditate. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. is. And, and, and uh, sorry, just, just, I mean, it's so interesting that here we are, it's two days time. It's Trinity Sunday in the calendar that we in the West observe. Yes. And, um, Many, many Christians, they hear the word Trinity and their eyes glaze over. They think it's that funny stuff, three and one and one and three, and, and maybe somebody understands it, but I don't. But actually what you just said is right in there. Hmm. This is what Trinitarian theology is all about. It's about realizing Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus all the way through, including Jesus weeping at the tomb of his friend, including Jesus suffering mm -hmm. on the cross. Um, that's hard, but that, that I think is what we're invited to do in the New Testament. Hmm. Yes. That's, that's helpful. I need to preach uh, this Sunday, and I, my sermon's not done, so I just wrote that down. That'll be my sermon. So. <laughs> Listen to the good bishop. He said, our, he said our notions of sovereignty need to get, need to get saved yeah. uh, through Christ. Uh, maybe we could... Uh, switch gears a bit here and, and talk about kind of what's compounded this pandemic yeah. of COVID, yeah. which is the uh, eruption of uh, attention on the racial relationships in America that are reverberating and rippling yeah. out across the pond. I know that there's demonstrations in London and all of Europe yeah. about what's happening here. Uh, Tom, uh, I have some very specific questions about about this, but what what is your blink on this? Why, why is this happening now? And uh, what are you noticing as you you know read the London Times? Well, uh, and look at yeah, look at some of the websites and so on. Um, for me, I have a p particular sense of tragedy. Uh, I was in Toronto the day that Martin Luther King was shot uh, in 1968. Uh, I was working there. I was in between school and university. And the next day, there was a crowd of tens of thousands in the main square in downtown Toronto, all singing "We Shall Overcome." for about an hour and it was it was amazing and there was a great sense of hope that well this is awful that he's been shot but at least we now know the score and we know that we're going to win this one we know that this racism thing is going to be stamped out and i look back and say that was 52 years ago and wow. we're still there yeah. and and so I say, why haven't we learned the lesson and this is where i have a real sorrow in my heart because the churches should have been in the forefront of leading the way into learning how to do a polychrome society wisely and well. And the mm. churches have simply shirked that responsibility. 
if you read the New Testament, particularly Paul, you know, you mentioned the doctrine of justification before, and we can joke about different debates and post-Reformation struggles. But the real problem is that in Galatians 2, which is the first place Paul is talking about justification, justification by faith means, it means that all those who believe in Jesus, whatever their ethnic background, need to be brothers and sisters sitting at the same table. Yes. Mm. And there's been so much in post-Reformation theology which has not only forgotten that, but has used the doctrine of justification as a weapon for separating Christians yes. from one another, yes. and therefore has instantiated um, homogeneous church bodies, mm -hmm. the church with people who just look exactly like you do and sound exactly like you do. And, uh, you know, uh, ecumenism is hard. Making bridges to other Christian traditions is hard. Uh, trust me, I'm a bishop. I've spent years trying to do that. Um, <laughs> but it's absolutely mandatory. This is not an option. And back yeah. to Romans. Romans doesn't just have four chapters or eight chapters. It has 16 chapters. And 14 and 15 are all about yes. how, despite your ethnic cultural differences, you have to learn to worship together, that we may with one. And if the churches had done that, please, God, for the mm. last hundred or more years, then they would have been a shining light to the rest yeah. of this is how and it's not easy but this is how you do it and so the churches have to bear some responsibility for for, for that for failing mm. to see and i bet there may be some people who would listen to this who would say oh nt Wright's just gone on to the social gospel and he's forgetting the real thing and the answer is absolutely not please read galatians seriously please yeah. read all of romans this this is the biblical holistic thing but then out beyond that, of course, we have all in our different ways in the Western world founded our societies on forms of violence. And we in Britain did a lot of slave trading. Um, and, and so, you know, in a sense, we are complicit in the long backstory of uh, um, a modern day slavery in America and elsewhere, um, which has then burst out the way it has. But we have also not done a lot of the, the, the wise thinking that we needed to do. And in a sense, the, 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 the modern or postmodern project of trying to have globalization, of trying to have um, multiculturalism, which has been so difficult, um, that's doing a typical thing that the Enlightenment tries to do, which is trying to get the results of the Christian gospel without believing in the Christian God. Mm. And it's as though it's as though the Enlightenment mm. savants can see, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? But actually, we don't want Jesus in on this. He'll just mess mess things up. Um, but actually, they can't do it. And we mm. in the church should have been there to say, well, this is how to do it. But mm. we've hardly started. Mm. Wow. Well, here's, I mean, you, you referenced this uh, in your comments a bit. There, there, is, there is this uh, branch, and it's fairly strong in American evangelicalism. I'm not sure how it, uh, if, it's, if we've transported over to Britain, if we have, I apologize. But there, there's this stream that just says, you know, what, what we need is the gospel, which is justification by faith usually, um, mm -hmm. and, and some kind of understanding of how the cross works. And, uh, so let's not spend time talking about social justice, and let's mm -hmm. not use anti or extra biblical frameworks like critical race theory to understand the the historical social developments of how uh, identities and constructs form. And um, if, if if you're speaking to someone who's maybe sympathetic to that, or leading a church full of people who mm -hmm. maybe protest, mm -hmm. that, how, how do you respond to that critique? Uh, I my first response would be an inner one. I mightn't necessarily say this, depending on who I was explicitly talking to, but it would be a sorrow that so much of the Western tradition has narrowed itself down. I mean, when you said the gospel for which they would mean justification by faith, uh, anyone reading Romans 1 for the first time without any of that baggage would say the gospel is Romans 1, 3, and 4, and 5, which is Jesus Christ descended from David, designated to be son of God in power, um, right. Jesus Christ. The gospel is the announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus is the Lord of the world. Romans yes. 1 16 following says the gospel results in the revelation of God's righteousness, which mm -hmm. is not simply justification, but which is precisely how the one God is righteous in his dealings with the world and with Israel and so on. Mm -hmm. And then within that, of course, you get 
justification by grace through faith. But a lot of this depends in the modern world, modern retrievals, on the Platonism which has infected so much Christianity, which thinks that the whole deal is just about how do people go to heaven when they die. Right. And I want to say as sharply as I can, you go to the first century looking for somebody who says, I have a soul which needs to get to heaven and so I'm out of here. The person you're after is Plutarch, not Paul. He's a slightly younger, seriously, Plutarch has a treatise on exile where he says, and he's writing in the second half of the first century, a great intellectual, and he's a, he's a pagan priest and a, and a biographer and all the rest of it. He says, I have a soul which is exiled from its true home in heaven, and uh, this is not bad, this world, I'm having an okay time, but I'm looking forward to going back to my true home. When I first read that, I thought, half mm. the Christians I know think that that's the gospel, and yeah. it really, really isn't. The gospel is about God's new creation bursting in through Jesus. But this comes in the package of a social project called this multi-ethnic, um, mutually supportive, outward-facing, worship-based, um, egalitarian community, which we call the church for short. And the church consists of all those who believe in Jesus, who are summoned to treat one another as brothers and sisters precisely because they are justified by faith, not not the, the badges of their ethnicity or works or whatever. Mm. And if we so that's justification by faith, which look at Galatians, it flows directly into the question of who do I sit down and eat with? And the political and social situation in southern Turkey when Paul is writing Galatians is so fraught that that's the situation in which justification by faith comes to birth. And until we've done business with the New Testament as it is, instead of the New Testament that we have snipped down to fit our late Western theological aspirations, the better. So I only have a few things I'm good at, and over-speaking is one of them. So let, permit me to over-speak here. It sounds like what you just said is justification by faith, among other things, is Paul's anti-racist pastoral strategy to help ethnicities understand their standing in the kingdom of God. That's a generalization. Let's be clear. <laughs> Uh, uh, the, the, the word racist and racial come yeah. to us freighted with Darwinian or social Darwinian overtones, and yeah. we have to get right back from that. Um, none of that existed in the first century. And what's more, by the way, in the Mediterranean world where Paul was at home, um, skin pigmentation wasn't an issue. There yes. were people from Africa, people from Asia, people from here, there, and everywhere. And they might vaguely notice that some people were somewhat darker than others. But it's not a big thing that people talk about in mm -hmm. the pagan literature or the Christian literature. So a lot of our assumptions about ethnicity simply don't obtain. But what we do see is precisely Paul's retrieval of that vision in, say, Isaiah 49. Or I was just doing a seminar this afternoon on Galatians 4, where he refers to Psalm 87, which says, amazingly, the psalmist says, I will talk about Egypt and Babylon and Tyre and Ethiopia. They were all born in Zion. And we mm -hmm. think, hang on. These are the traditional enemies of the people of God. And Paul is quoting that psalm because people are getting back at him because he is saying that people from um, every nation under the sky, barbarian, Scythian, whatever, they can, if they believe in Jesus, Israel's Messiah, they are all members of the family. So mm. I wouldn't say it's an ethnic, pro I would say it's first and foremost a messianic project. Because the, the messianic expectation that Paul believes is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth and in his death and resurrection is precisely, and here's the meaning of the cross for Paul and John, is that the, the evil which has enslaved the nations because they worship idols, that evil has been defeated on the cross through Jesus' act of penal substitution. It isn't either Christus victor or penal substitution. It's because of substitution, the evil which has enslaved us, the, the diabolical evil is dealt with. Therefore, these poor people who were enslaved to um, the idols they worship, they are sinners no longer. If they're in the Messiah, wow, they are mm. our brothers and sisters. So if we just say an anti-racial or ethnic policy, it just sounds like a, a modern or postmodern agenda. I want to say this is Paul's messianic, isianic, Psalms-based project. God promised Abraham a single family, 
uh, blessing all the nations in mm. that process. And Paul yes. says, that's what's happened in the Messiah. Yes. This is not an unbiblical thing or a sub-justification thing. This is what Galatians and Romans are all about. Yes. Yeah, I was trying to be cheeky and scandalous, and I think you took it up. <laughs> uh, no, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, it's great. The dividing wall of hostility is tearing that down is part of the gospel. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, maybe one more thing uh, for us. I, I, I was discussing this with some friends online about how how uh, white, being white and whiteness and race as a construct that you mentioned was kind of invented and is a novel modern thing. Um, if those same dynamics of hegemonic power that seeks to create hierarchies of dignity and honor and value between humans, if that exists in scripture, if it doesn't exist as race, does it exist there, that same dynamic or or um, phenomenon that humans create this thing? And how do we mine that in order to seek solutions to our current problems today? Wow, wow. Yeah, that's good. I mean, so for instance, would, would Babylon be, or empire be, uh, be a uh, uh, ancient phenomenon of the same kind of thing we see as creating racial divisions in order to justify power and dominance and enslavement of people. Sure, uh, uh, up to a point. I mean, the different ancient civilizations have their differences, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the, the yeah. Persians, whatever, um, and then ultimately the Romans, of course. Um, there is usually, of course, an emphasis on we Babylonians, we Romans. I mean, Cicero is so kind of naive about it, but but it mm -hmm. must have looked true at the time that mm -hmm. we Romans have justice and freedom and peace, and we give them to the rest of the world. Um, and now, th that rhetoric is surprisingly modern. There is at least one nation in the last hundred years that has tended to say that quite a lot. And there may be other nations coming along who are trying to say it as well. And we mm -hmm. may not like to hear it from them. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are major... And geopolitical problems right now. But here's the thing. This is why talking about the kingdom of God is so important. Some people say, oh, kingdom, that's such a, uh, a hierarchical word. And the answer is, look what Jesus does with it. The kingdom of God is focused on the cross. And as I said half an hour ago, um, Jesus' redefinition of sovereignty of kingdom includes the redefinition of hierarchy. The one who is uh, greatest among you must be the servant. And here's a little child. This one is the greatest in the kingdom of God. This is the constant challenge. And those of us who are uh, part of nations and cultures which see themselves as naturally hegemonic. I mean, here am I, I'm a white male sitting in Oxford in England. Um, that just looks kind of, okay, it's time I just went away and hid somewhere. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm aware of this because a few years ago, I was doing a seminar in Fuller Seminary in California, and uh, a very fine New Testament scholar, Love Seacrest, who is an African-American lady, um, she pushed back at me and she said, you have to realize that people like me, when they hear you talking about um, equality within people of different ethnic backgrounds, what we hear is you guys can all be honorary whites like me. <laughs> um, and I said, wow. OK, I hear that that's what you hear. Mm. I hope you hear that that isn't what I intend. But mm. it's very difficult when I'm almost literally holding the microphone um, mm. for that to come across. And maybe the only ways it can come across is is hopefully God willing in the way that I live and the way that people know I live. Mm. Yes, uh, this has been great. Uh, I need to let you go. My daughter is also uh, making sure that I'm remembering that I'm supposed to take her on a play date with her friends. Um, maybe Do one, it. maybe one more question, just okay. to, just to end, uh, Tom. Um, you know, our, a lot of our audience, a lot of our listeners are leaders of some kind, Christian leaders, pastors. Um, in the midst of all of this uh, crisis, um, would would you have like? just a word of encouragement, like what would you want to say to people who are leading Christian communities right now who maybe feel like they're in over their heads and they don't know what they're doing? Um, yeah. Have a word I, of I, would say, I would say being in over your head and feeling you don't know what you're doing is, is normal. And that if you ever get to the place where you feel you're on top of it all and can handle it all, then watch out, go and talk to your spiritual director because you probably need <laughs> mm. um, some remedial <laughs> help at that. I mean, it's quite serious. Um, yes. Normal ministry involves crises of one sort or another. 
obviously when there's a particular crisis then uh, it should drive us back the old lessons are the best it should drive us back to the scriptures drive us back to prayer drive us back insofar as we can when we're all locked down and shut away um, mm -hmm. to fellowship with with our friends with the people we pray with and for um, and to be free to say, I really have no idea what to do here, but actually congregations might enjoy having their pastor say to them on a Sunday morning, um, you know, this has taken me to a place where I really don't know what to do. So I'm doing the only thing I know how to do, which is to read the Psalms with you and to read the Gospels with you and to ask the living presence of our loving Lord Jesus, who himself lived at a time when the world didn't know, you know, first century Jews were in over their head, all yes. kinds of chaos going on. And Jesus comes into the middle of that to share that pain and to say, this is the way for God to become king. And one thing we haven't talked about, but I just put down a marker because in my little book, God and the Pandemic, which I think we were talking about, um, I do a lot with Romans 8. Romans mm. 8 is so important that the yes. spirit groans within us and the answer is not so that we can then have all the answers yep. but so that we know that when we don't have the answers then god the spirit is lamenting and the father is listening and mm -hmm. we are being formed in the pattern of the messiah and yes. that's romans 8 28 that god works all things together for good through those who thus love him Mm -hmm. and are prepared to stay with the lament and to do the act of love, whatever it may be. Good word. I want to talk to you for another hour about that. <laughs> your, your exegesis you. of that passage was uh, wonderful in that, in that passage. So in that book, so uh, friends uh, pick up the book. It's uh, it's called God in the pandemic, um, a Christian reflection on the coronavirus and its aftermath. Um, Tom Wright, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much indeed. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.